0: Hello and welcome to CSDS Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to look deeper into some of the biggest issues in the world's most dynamic region. I'm Andrew People, and for this edition we're pleased to be working in partnership with the Lao Institute at King's College London as part of a special series of China-focused episodes. The Lao China Institute is the largest China centre in the UK. It exists to build a greater understanding of China both in the UK and across the globe through education, research and outreach. So to find out more, please visit www.kcl.ac.uk forward slash LCI. Well, in the course of this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the issues and factors affecting the lives of women in China ahead of International Women's Day on March the 8th. To do so, I'm pleased to be joined by two renowned experts. Ye Liu is a senior lecturer in international development at King's College London, and her research is focused on education and gender inequalities in China. Hello to you, yeah. Hi, Andrew. And Deborah Davis is joining us as well. Deborah is a professor of sociology at Yale University, and her research focuses on contemporary China. Her 2014 book, Wives, Husbands, and Lovers, focused on marriage and sexuality in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and urban China. Welcome to you too, Deborah.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: As I say, thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. And let's get our discussion underway. We all know that China's seen this extraordinary economic growth over the last few decades, and we also know that the government has, in recent years, loosened restrictions on the number of children that families are allowed to have. Yet despite all this, the birth rate in China has dropped to its lowest level on record, and women in China are marrying much later in life, if at all. Ye Liu, can I start with you? What are some of the factors shaping in particular, young women's attitudes towards balancing work life and families in today's China. And how have those been shifting in the last few years?
2: Like uh, young women across the whole globe, in many other countries, young women in China are still facing the same dilemma of having it all balancing career and family. There are some micro-level factors. For instance, young women nowadays are concerned of a lack of a reliable and affordable childcare, and they're also concerned about the educational cost, for instance, for raising a child or two children, particularly in urban areas. Women are also concerned with a motherhood penalty on their careers, their income, and also a sense of self-worth. Because a lot of uh, highly educated young women nowadays, they have very strong sense of of you know themselves as a career woman that's a very important part of their identity and they don't want that to be taken away and also at individual level we we should not just be led by you know statistics and uh, fertility rates in china we also need to look at what happened in individual families what happened between husband and wife there is a kind of a never-ending negotiation between wives and husbands about child care you know, it's more than just school runs, curriculum, extracurricular study, but it's also constant kind of a back and forth between six adults, between grandparents and husbands and wives. And this kind of very complicated intergenerational relationships also complicated their decision making.
0: Lots to unpack there, yelu I mean, you've done a lot of research on the ground in China talking to young women in particular, what were the sort of key themes that came through that work that you've done in terms of how attitudes towards family life and work life are changing amongst particularly younger women in today's China?
2: I think younger women are having more and more confidence in themselves. And they certainly talk a lot about kind of worthiness, their identities as a professional, they talk about their careers a lot. They sometimes downplay their private roles as wives or mothers. The confidence boosting is very important among young women, and we need to pay more attention to you know their priorities in life, building a meaningful career, and also kind of minimizing the concerns on motherhood penalty.
0: Deborah, can I bring you in here? What have you found in your sort of similar research that you've done in China in terms of the way that attitudes towards these sorts of issues are changing in China, in families, both amongst the younger generation and, as Ye Liu hinted there, amongst the older generation as well?
1: Yes, um, I very much agree with Ye on her description of the pressure on these young urban women, particularly the college-educated And in this recent essay that she did with 82 interviews, terrific piece, she emphasizes that there are these different levels at which one uh, thinks through a moral one, a financial one, and one's status and then self-worth. From my work, I step back to generalize very often about all of China, and that means breaking it down. So most young women are born in villages, And currently are migrating. That's the plurality. And these migrant women are less likely to be only children. They very often have siblings, but they are also much better educated than their mothers, just like the urban women. And they also have dreams for self realization and career. So it's very interesting, I think, the way in which these younger rural born women, whether they're living in large cities or towns, face. Some of the same concerns that Ye has just outlined. And this impacts the fertility. It impacts are they going to have a second child? How do they relate to the grandparents who may still be in the village pushing for the birth of a son? So I think there are ways in which this issue of work life balance is there for all young women. But I also would stress on this shifting um, that we don't forget what happened in the 1950s or even otherwise. In which women didn't have choice, whether they were in rural areas or urban, they were going to be full time workers. That was part of the revolution, so that the experience of being a mother and a wife really through nineteen eighty was one in which work was not a choice, job was not a choice. We are now in a new place in that I do think this issue of choice is much more salient
0: that's very interesting that impact of the sheer number of people in China, particularly from rural areas who are working away from home, often thousands of miles away from their home and their family support structures these days. How big a factor is that in terms of the overall effect it has on things like the birth rate? Because people simply don't have the family support structures that they might have done when people were sort of less mobile across the country.
1: The migration is the largest structural factor, which has transformed family life. Currently, about 40% of all children in China spend the school year with one or no parent. When we look at who's marrying, this is primarily migrants, the largest group. And so this issue about marriage, which is part of what we're going to be talking about today, is critically different. These are young people, men and women. Far from their families, moving about from place to place. And for those who began in the village, this is a huge change because they have this freedom and also this sexual revolution, which was perhaps inadvertently started by the one child policy, which gave everyone (laughs) access to birth control, almost abortion on demand, a freedom to have romantic liaisons inside marriage, outside marriage. This was truly a revolution. For post 49 China, which up to this time had really conflated marriage and sexuality. So, going back to what Ye was talking about, the young urban woman, college educated, this is part of what's changing her life also. So, directly on migration, it has the most impact for the rural born. It indirectly impacts those already in the city because it brings into the city, into the town, literally hundreds thousands of young people from different backgrounds, and people are mixing in this context. In terms of the childcare, which Yeah has described so well with the four grandparents hovering about the one grandchild and the way in which young couples have to negotiate that, the rural families, these split families, their big concern is, do they send the child back to the village? Do they keep the children in the village? And this has raised a whole series of crises over childcare and then that impacts how young women and young men understand being parents and whether they would consider having an additional birth because for them the childcare is so difficult and it often means leaving their child behind and this is excruciating so it's expensive it's problematic and it also impacts their decision whether or not to have another birth.
0: Yeah, Liu, you referred at the start to the fact that obviously these sorts of issues are issues in countries across the world. But can you give us some insight into what child care support is like in China, in terms of what the state provides, what families provide, and what's sort of lacking in terms of where things would need to be in order to give people maybe more security about having larger families
2: so china's spending public spending on preschool childcare has been historically low compared to other oecd countries and recently had increased to around 0.4% of gdp but the childcare at a crucial age of childcare, when we talk about age 0 to age three, practically non-existent. So the Chinese families, urban or rural, still rely on their own family support system. Deborah just mentioned about the rural migrants. They still have to rely on their family members, parents, grandparents from the countryside to come to the city to help them with childcare or They have to make that important decision whether they have to leave the children behind. For urban women, urban women also moved around a lot. They have families close to their work, not necessarily close to their parents. So they also involve a lot of, almost like military planning, arranging childcare support. I interviewed 82 women who were brotherless. Siblings, the first generation of a one-child policy, they call themselves the experiment generation. Rich or poor, they still rely on their parents for support. When I ask them why they still want the parents for support, and some of the women who are, you know, highly educated, really professionally accomplished, also had a really good income. And they also kind of opened another can of the wounds private market for childcare care provider, hugely underregulated and not professionalized, which means urban families do not trust private childcare providers for those between age of naught to age of three. So this kind of lack of a trust coupled with this anxiety of bringing up another generation of hope, they are under a lot of pressure to have more children and also The government encouraged people to have more children for our future economy and for a harmonious society. But particularly women I interviewed are still very cautious and not convinced by the prospect of having more than one child.
0: Can I follow up on that? I mean, I'm quite interested in how women in particular respond to those sort of government calls to have more children and to have bigger families. And it's all about, you know, the health of China into the future. I mean, clearly, it is going to be an economic problem for China, as it is for so many countries having an ageing population. But do, do people listen to those sorts of exhortations and encouragements from the government to have more children? Or do they kind of turn a blind eye to that?
2: You know, it's difficult to give a kind of straightforward answer particularly women from an urban area. Let's talk about younger uh, women, this Ho, Joling Ho, Ho. These women born at one child policy, they had more education than their parents' generation. They had a very empowered childhood, girlhood. And they have a great prospect of pursuing a um, you know, meaningful career. And for them, the women I interviewed, they felt like they're experimented by the state. They call themselves the guinea pigs. They call themselves the experiment generation of the one-child policy. And now they're the first generation of women who were legally allowed to have additional children. But they feel torn between the top-down approach in terms of the population planning.
1: So in Ye's piece, she has examples of people who choose to have a second child because of the state invocation. Sometimes it's indirect in that they've decided to take a certain state position in their office, and this secures them a certain kind of protection and security, which they didn't have if they hadn't gone along with the recommendation to have a second or third child. In the big numbers, and in my work in this area, I find this a very small minority. Men and women are making a decision about having another birth or even having the first birth based on what they can economically afford. And for both the highly educated with well-paid jobs and the urban working class who do not have highly paid jobs and are facing early retirement and elderly parents, this is really problematic. So most of people I interviewed in the cities who were thinking about having a second child, they did this in the 2017 interviews, little bit before year's project, but when the second child was possible, nobody in this group would want a second child, including the grandparents, because the grandparents said, we've done it for the first, we're not doing it for a second. So this bringing on a second child when there is no alternative to intensive mothering in the home means that very few men and women are responding positively to the state's invocation. Now, in the past, and if we go back when they implemented the one-child policy, there were some carrots, but mainly they were sticks, right? You lost many things. If you had an out of quota child or you had a child before, you were allowed to have a child. And that, I think, is what, of course, has changed a lot. What kind of carrots and sticks <laughs> does the Chinese state have now? Are there any carrots and sticks?
2: So the, this kind of a carrot and stick argument, the Chinese government, I think in a way they listen to people's concern. They've seen a lot of surveys about why people don't want to have more children. And the first kind of a clear signal from the Chinese government is to crack down on private tutoring, to kind of a step in this intensive parenting, the toxic competitiveness. It has been a kind of a phenomenon, Chinese, called a jiwa, which means intensive parenting plus concerted cultivation type of parenting. All the family, two families, investment and commitment concentrated on one or two children.
1: What I was picking up, it wasn't part of my formal interviewing, so it may be more anecdotal, but it does make sense, is that Actually closing the tutoring meant that there was more pressure on the mothers to be the education, as we used to say in Japanese, education mama, that this is who's going to have to take up the slack. Because as you yourself write and have mentioned, the economy remains cutthroat competition. The path to getting into the best lower middle school, the best senior middle school, and then to the best university remains as difficult.
2: I think the rationale for the government to introduce this crackdown of private sector private tutoring was to ease the burden on individual families, to create a kind of to usher in a new era, what they called happy learning, happy study. But the issue remains: China has been through this really competitive exam-based education for so many years since the reform and opening, and China also had a thousand years of curfew exam-based system, it's very difficult to kind of uproot this kind of culture norms, you know, overnight. Open family develop different strategies for the really rich families. They hire English tutor as their nanny, as their domestic support, pay them a huge, you know, monthly salary. And another set of trend is open parents increasingly invest in extracurriculum activities. Some urban parents, for instance, in inner the provinces, they travel hours, hours on the train to have one hour, you know, piano lesson with a very renowned music teacher in Shanghai, for instance. So it's kind of the government policy. There is kind of a mismatch between the, the policy intent and the preliminary kind of outcome of the policy to make urban family even more anxious. It's a very interesting kind of crossroads in China now. You know, how can we define success? How can we make our children successful?
0: Deborah, can I come to you? I just wanted to ask whether in the course of your research you saw any signs of changing gender roles within families at all, whether men, for example, are taking on more of the burden of things like childcare and cooking and cleaning and so on within within the household. Are those kinds of changes taking place in China as these pressures on on younger families seem to intensify in terms of achieving success for their children and so on and so forth?
1: Uh, No. Uh, (laughs) There have been many surveys as well as many people doing more ethnographic as well as novels and movies. Because the gap between male and female wages has increased over this last 30 years, and in particular accelerated in the last 15 with the rise of particularly highly paid professional managerial jobs. This accentuates the actual dominance of men in the household. It also means that for men, the rewards are in the workplace. So every hour they have to spend in the workplace, they should invest there and they'll be supported by the rest of the family. The wage return justifies that. I think many of us have found That the return of the idea of a dominant man is very important and he should be socially recognized. Sharing housework is not part of that. Also, because I am interested in this generational comparison, I have three generations I'm looking at. When work was not as competitive, when the state really was pushing both rhetorically and economically male female equality and economic returns, there also was possible for men to take up more. Of the burden of cooking of shopping, I tracked this quite in detail in the eighties, so at that time, life wasn't as easy, so picking up the coal, picking up the rice, picking up the children if you're the one who had the bicycle, and now we're China's in a new place for the migrants, I think Suzanne choi's work it's called Masculine Compromise, and this is a study of what migrant men experience being separated having their wives often come with them, working in other kinds of jobs, the couple separated, but requiring to support the parents of particularly the husband in the countryside. And what she describes is this enormous pressure on these rural migrant men to be powerful, strong, and good providers, and of course, good sons. And this is extremely difficult. The pressure on these migrant couples is huge. It's one reason the divorce rate is so high for them. And being manly, uh, expressing oneself in a stereotypical manly way, is, I would say, more pronounced in family life for urban people now than it was in the early 80s and in the 1970s.
0: That's very interesting, because we've seen recently some leading government figures railing against what they've called, um, in inverted commas, sissy men, this idea of young men, some of them You know, the older generation see as somewhat effeminate, and so on. Is that something that you've picked up on as well? This kind of desire at different levels of Chinese society for, as you say, more manly men. In again, in inverted commas. And conversely, does that lead to any sort of changes in the way that what society sees as a woman's role or the ideal woman? How has that changed in recent years?
1: In our work here at, at the Tsai Center at the Yale, the Legal Studies Center for Study of China, the focus for many years, one of the foci has been um, the LGBTQ community. And so this sissy boys piece and the sexuality piece is actually, in part, a more recent crackdown on the gay community and gay rights. And it's the latest. One of the things that was so interesting is, as the government restricted activism and environmentalism, restricted the Feminist Five, even as they passed the new domestic violence law. There was amazing freedom. Gay Pride shows, galas that came from the underground and came above. And then in the last year, we watched Gay Pride close down. PFLAG, which is the organization for parents of gay and lesbian youth, has continued. But there is definitely a push back. And one expression of that is to promote a stereotypical being the man of the house, being physically superior, and of course, being obviously male, as opposed to binary or a sissy man. So I, these two things are linked. What's happened with gay rights and gay life and, and recognition of homosexuality, which was going on a liberating trajectory for almost 20 years, that's part of this uh, sissy man On the question of what is femininity, I should speak to this. My short answer is, indeed, this has changed a lot. And because I've been working in, in China since 1980, and before that in Taiwan and Hong Kong, it's been interesting for me to see how my students, because I'm generally in an academic setting, and then my younger colleagues present themselves and what they want to do. And certainly in these last 10 years, there was this emphasis on losing weight, nails, being fit in a certain kind of cross-training fitness, the dress being, quote, more revealing, more feminine. In other words, highlighting what are stereotypical female traits. And so I do think there is a push, some of it from the market, some from individual people's desires, and some of it from state policy to promote certain stereotypes, both for men and women which serve the government's interest in the vision they have for the kind of control over unofficial life.
0: Yeah, Liu, does this tally with what you're seeing in terms of definitions of ideal femininity, ideal masculinity, both at the sort of state level and amongst people in general?
2: I totally agree with Deborah's point on this manly man and family woman. It's the great push... Back to have this clear distinction, clear binary. So for my research, I interviewed women from the one-child policy and very likely their husbands also from a sibling's family. And when I talk about asking about the division of labour within the household, and they talk about this relentless pressure to prioritise their husband's masculine roles. I was always very interested in women's kind of consciousness about gender egalitarianism. You know, is there any strategy or attempt to create an equal household, for instance? And the problem related back to the childcare, they describe the marriage is very crowded. So it's not just between husbands and wives. And it's about this kind of ongoing complicated relationship with mother-in-laws and father-in-laws. So the, the man, in order to fit themselves to the traditional masculine rule and norms, to earn money, to support a family, and their parents step in to kind of the outsource all the household chores to their parents. So their parents, my interviewees, describe the parenting law as a patriarchal gang to block any progressive attempt to address. You know a gender equality in individual family. I also want to talk a little bit a uh, slightly complicated issues about kind of positional advantages or disadvantages. So women, if they marry to man below their socioeconomic status or the man who are not from metropolitan cities or whose family not as well off as their parents, they have more kind of bargaining power. they can have more kind of decision-making power in terms of whether, to have another child or whether to invest in a family property, they can have a, a bigger say in the family. But if the women's socioeconomic status inferior to their husband, they still rely on the husband family to pay for their mortgage or pay for their property deposit, they step back. They kind of assume this kind of traditional family role. They talk about being virtuous, they talk about being a virtuous wife and being a good mother. So that's very important to their identity because their negotiation power is very limited comparatively to their husbands. But having said that, even women from much higher social status, from much more affluent families, when they come to their husband's careers, they still prioritize their husband's careers, and they still agreed it's important for men to have a career to be the huju, in Chinese, the head of household even though they make more decisions in the family. So this is something very interesting from my research.
0: Turning to the workplace and what you've observed there, at the start of this discussion, you you spoke about the sort of new self-confidence that many women have, particularly in in urban places, and they're, they're looking to have good and fulfilling careers and successful careers. What sort of barriers, though, are coming in their way what are attitudes towards women like within workplaces and do women have the sort of role models that they need in society I mean still you don't see that many women amongst the higher reaches of politics and and business in China I think
2: this is a very interesting question so in terms of a workplace it's a very very muddy area so women have just experienced discrimination from The entry level, a lot of women describe their shock and gender consciousness when they were actually job hunting. So a lot of job advertisements in China still outline as male only, even civil servants' jobs. So there are different different points in women's career they face this kind of discrimination and had a different levels of discrimination. So the entry level, they felt they're not as competitive as their Male counterparts in university, and this I just want to kind of step back to emphasize they had empowered gohood, they went to university, and they also high achievers than their male classmates. But when you know the first transition to the labor market, they were taken back; they were shocked by the blunt gender discrimination. And also, once they settled in their jobs, they are facing misogynist and sexist microaggression on a daily basis. Now, let's talk about women when they want to have children. So, for instance, in some of the women I interviewed, they have to apply for a pregnancy queue, which means they have to discuss their fertility plans with their line managers. And because of the particularly small businesses and even some schools, they try to avoid like multiple employers taking maternity leave at the same time. They ask women to declare the intention and they have to have approval from their line manager before they can get pregnant. And even if they had successfully kind of pregnant, so there is a kind of a culture called the diminished capabilities associated with pregnant women and women with young children. They were caught to have baby brains and diminished performance potential. They got their projects taken away. They were asked to step back, to allow their male colleagues to take leadership of the projects, for instance. And they feel like this is a very clear penalty on their career. And it's not just during pregnancy. It also lasted several years. For some of the women I interviewed, they reckon it would took them around three years to climb back to the level of seniority before they were pregnant. And also China's maternity law and maternity pay very complicated. So by law, and China recently introduced new legislations, so Chinese women across different provinces in general are entitled to at least 16 to 18 weeks or sometimes even 30 weeks of maternity leave. majority of the leave are fully paid. But this is, these are the legislation in theory. In practice, women still concerned about the penalty when they return to work. For instance, some of the women, they rush back from their maternity leave. They only took around six weeks and still faced scale back from the original place in their companies or in various positions they held before. Some of the women I interview already held quite senior positions in co-ops and in uh, SOEs, for instance. They also talk about this kind of microaggressions in workplace. For instance, they had a meeting and the, the male senior managers discussed kind of female virtues. And if you kept silence, you did not want to you know, show your opinion. You face this kind of punishment for being a difficult uh, woman. And when women speak up and, and talk about their own ideas, they uh, are stereotyped as a girls, domineering personality. So the various kind of stereotypes and misogynist practices in the workplace undermine women's potential to pursue advanced career, to have more ambition.
0: Those are all absolutely fascinating points. And obviously, a lot of change Still needed within China. I think some of those complaints are obviously things that women in other countries and in other companies would probably share. Some of those feelings, but it's fascinating to hear what the pressures are, what the situation is for so many women in in today's China. Deborah, can I bring you in here? Do you want to come back on that?
1: I think yes. Observations are totally on the mark for particularly highly educated single women in the cities, but if we zoom out and look at people who don't fit that category, it depends on whether private or public sector. In both cases, there are many barriers. In the public sector, one of the key things is, which Yia mentions in her written work, is this earlier retirement for women, forced mandatory retirement. And that, of course, limits the promotion ladder. It starts very soon. You're not going to advance someone who has to retire at age 55. Similarly, all positions of authority ultimate authority in any workplace are through the party there is a promotion escalator through the party which is the main means to authority and power and in that case number of women party members hasn't decreased but the number of women party members who have authority in the workplace has decreased in china there was a period when the state control whether in the countryside or in the cities was more complete over the economy there were women's slots. And so women could become accountant, they could become the head of the women's office at the village level, at the county level, and in the cities similarly. So the work that I did in the 80s in Shanghai was before the reform and was through the retirement organization. So I interviewed hundreds of retired or newly retired women and interviewed in factories. And these were women, because in the textile industry it was mainly women. So it's women supervising women. And those kinds of jobs no longer exist. And this raises the other piece about the rise of the private sector, which is not regulated in the same way and is all about profits. And so you're going to go for what gives your unit the highest profit rate. And the second part is if it's private and family owned, which is key in the countryside, less so in the city, but there's also important in the city, it's the sons. You invest in your sons or even your sons-in-law when it comes to getting the loans to advance the company, they will go through the men. They are not going to loan money to women. Women, even if it's your most talented daughter, you are not going to make her the head of the company. She may marry and leave or the other family. So in the Japanese case, as you know, they have a system where they adopt in the son-in-law when their own son is not acceptable to the company. China doesn't have that component. So this is another way I would call a structural and cultural barrier that was not as intense. It's not that it was not there, but in many ways, it was latent. And what the reforms have done by creating this dynamo private sector, in many ways, is allow cultural expectations in which men are dominant, men are the priority, whether it's in the family or the workplace. And this disadvantages, of course, educated women, highly competent women, and ambitious women. P.S. on the side, however, you go down the the sector and we're looking at blue collar manufacturing jobs. What we see in China is what we see in other countries that when you talk about these new manufacturing, no matter what large scale factory it is, early we saw it in Taiwan, you saw it in Thailand, now we see it in China. They want young women with nimble fingers. They want women who will be good on the line will follow the orders of the foreman. And so the women get sometimes better paid jobs in industry than their male siblings who are shifted off as uneducated rural boys into the shipping department or into the hard labor. And it's the women who have this value. And so one of the issues when we talked about the divorce and the split childcare, et cetera, for these rural migrants is that it is not uncommon for the young wife to have a better job and be paid more than her husband. And then you get into the conflict of him returning to the village. He has no future. And so I just wanted to zoom out a little bit so that those folks listening on the program will, when they talk about China, break it down, not only by generation, this young versus middle-aged versus old because of their historical experiences, but also be thinking about the complexity of the Chinese economy not only agrarian sector industrial service jobs, but also the private sector versus the public sector.
0: Well I think that's absolutely right. And that's a fascinating note to bring our discussion to an end for today. Thank you, Deborah, for those insights. And thank you, Ye Liu as well. So many interesting topics that we've covered there and probably so many more uh, that we could go on to to discuss. But I want to thank you both again for your time and expertise and, and insights there. Thank you also today to Rebecca Bailey for producing this episode of CSDS Asia Matters. You can still find our podcasts, obviously, on any available platform. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. So do please give us any feedback that you might have. Thank you for listening today and goodbye.